So this morning, there's no PowerPoint. It just says, uh, should say up there, see God. That's it. See God. That's the title of my message. Um, so I ask you this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn them to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. That's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Um, I just want you to open your Bibles. I want you to see God's word. And then as I, as I talk and refer to other scriptures, especially in Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes, move along with me and see God's word. Um, we started out by reading uh, the confession as opposed to scripture, as Greg pointed out, and that was the first paragraph uh, in the confession on the doctrine of God. I, I didn't want to make you stand long enough to read the second paragraph, but I want to read it to you. Um, also, it, it's so much, right? God is so much. The, this confession, it's not God's word, but it's what God's word tells us about God. It's how he reveals himself to us. So now listen to this second paragraph of who God is. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight, all things are open and manifest His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. That's God. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning, um, an imperfect man, praying that as I speak this morning, the power of your Spirit will take my words and and make them yours. I pray, Lord, as as they form in my mind, which you created, as they, as they manifest in my vocal cords, which you created, as they come out of my mouth, which you created, as they go into the air, which you created, as they travel the speed of sound, which you determined into the ears of all your creatures here this morning, I pray, Lord, that your word will not return void, that it will go out in the power of your spirit. I pray that it will, it will reach the hearts even of those who believe. Lord, I pray that they will be encouraged. I pray that they will be exhorted and, if necessary, convicted. And, Lord, for those here this morning, of of which I'm sure there are a few that have not seen you, I would pray, Lord, that you would give them just a glimpse, because I know if they could get just a glimpse, they would be set on the paths of righteousness. Lord, I pray that today, for those that don't know you, that don't see you, Lord, I pray that they would bend the knee as one day all creatures will. And I pray, Lord, that they could do that and worship you today. Lord, I pray that you will open their eyes. 
Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may recall um, I've been preaching on the trilogy that I call Solomon uh, for a couple of years now, intermittently as, as I have opportunity. Um, the, the thing I started with was Proverbs. And if you recall, um, that was a book uh, written by Solomon that had this beginning half that, that was talking about a father who was pleading with his son to not pursue woman folly, which is death, and to pursue woman wisdom, which is life. And the first nine chapters, I believe, of that book was that father talking to his son. And then after that, we have Proverbs, lots of Proverbs. And if you recall, it ended with Proverbs 31. And there's a lot that we can learn about godly women from Proverbs 31. But, but what I see is, is Solomon putting, the, putting his stamp on the end to marry woman wisdom. That was Proverbs. And now I've been studying Ecclesiastes, and it's been seven months uh, since I last spoke. And I want to tell you, for seven months, I've been looking at Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. I've been, I've been ruminating on it, um, applying it, thinking about it, um, loving it. I, I, you wouldn't think that you could, you could study 14 verses for seven months and not grow weary, but this is, what, this is who God is. This is what his word really is. I wish for all of you that you could do that. Um, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, has the same pattern as Proverbs I discovered. Instead of a father pleading with his son, it's now the king pleading with his people not to pursue vanity, right? The foolishness of life. He appeals to the congregation to turn from vanity and a chasing after the wind, which is death, and, turns, and, and to turn towards God, which is life, followed by a bunch of Proverbs. And that's where we're at today. We're right in the middle of the book. Now, since I haven't preached in seven months, I, I suspect you forgot most of what I said in the first six chapters, so I apologize, but I have to take the time and review. So we're all caught up. And, and I, you know, I apologize, but at the same time, it's good. It's good to be reminded of all these things. So let's briefly review the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, at least the first six chapters. Chapter 1, Solomon helps us to see that all of life under the sun that's on the earth is a circle. Man is going nowhere. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, we must understand, this is the result of the fall. And it is part of God's eternal purposes. Remember what Paul wrote in, Ecclesi- in, sorry, in Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this futility that we're in is by no accident. In chapter 2, by letting us see through his personal experiences, Solomon proves to us the empty results of a pursuit of satisfaction and joy through temporal means, through worldly living, through our, through our ways and not God's ways. Solomon concluded only by, only by the grace and revelation of God to him that apart from God, joy is impossible. You may recall Solomon wrote in chapter 2, verse 25, and John, this is the verse that you asked me, what's my favorite one in Ecclesiastes? This is it. For apart from him, that's God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Chapter 3. Solomon helps us see who this God is. He is sovereign one who appoints a time for everything. And the Hebrew is very clear there on that. Chapter 3, verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything. Here we have the doctrine of God. We read the doctrine, right? You you can't comprehend it all, but just think of a part. Think of infinite infallible. Think of the phrase, nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. There's no one here who lives like that. That's God. Also in chapter 3, Solomon helps us see who man is. He very clearly states man is a beast whose end is death. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 says, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Here we have the doctrine of man. Chapter 4 and 5, Solomon gives us hope by helping us see the true comfort can be found in God. However, we must approach God, he says, on his terms, always listening. He says, be not rash with your mouth, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And I thought about this a long time. And the words that came to mind were, I repent and I believe. Here, in a way, we have the doctrine of salvation, which is our true comfort in life and death. After helping us see all these things, Solomon concludes the first half of the book, which is about where we ended last time, in chapter 6, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. It's interesting to me that in Scripture, those who are without faith 
those living by their own desires, desires and wandering or going nowhere appetites are described as blind. Not literally blind, but blind to what matters. They do not have the eyes of faith to see God. I also found it interesting in Ecclesiastes, if you were one of those who might have read the first six chapters, you might have noticed the many, many, many references uh, to sight in the first half of the book. Solomon is often saying, often saying, I see, I have seen, I saw, I perceived. And I think there's a point to that. And I think that point may culminate, at least at some level in today's message, see God. The first half of Ecclesiastes ended in verse 9 with that refrain, this also is vanity and a chasing after the wind. This is the last time that phrase is used in the book. We're transitioning. He starts off in vanity and hopelessness, but we're transitioning. He's transitioning for us. He's indicating a change is happening. What comes next is a statement of reality, followed by two questions that are meant to provoke all men to faith. They are a bridge between the two halves of the book that are really asking just one question, just one. Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 12. Here's the statement, and you'll hear the questions. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Past is past. God has named the past. God has named today, and he has named tomorrow. Right? What, and it is known, he says, what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. That one we can't dispute with is God, the God we've just read about. For who knows, here's the questions now, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Everything before led to this question. Everything afterwards is going to answer this question and leads us to the conclusion that man needs to know Solomon's famous end of the matter. And if, if you don't know what that is, go, you go yourself and look at chapter 12 at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what you need to know. The question then is not how, it's not what, it's not where, it's not when, it's not why. Rather, the ultimate question is who? Who? In the rest of the book, Solomon answers this question both positively and negatively. When answering negatively, he is directing us then to the answer. To see the only possible answer. For example, in chapter 7 and 8, this is how he answers negatively. He uses words like this. Man may not find out. Who can find it out? Man cannot find out the work that is of God that is done under the sun. In chapters 9 through 11, getting towards the end of the book, he answers negatively this way. Man does not know. Man does not know his time. Man does not know the way. You do not know what disaster may happen on earth. And again in chapter 11, verse 6, you do not know which will prosper. You see, apart from God's special revelation, another doctrine proclaimed in Ecclesiastes, man cannot know what is good for him and certainly what will be after him. Man is unable to answer the question. 
Man is not the who. In fact, apart from God's revelation, man really doesn't know anything. To put it in mathematical terms, which I like to think about, what man knows divided by infinity, right, which is who God is, you know, man knows a lot. But in math, if you've had some basic math, when you take anything and divide it by infinity, what do you get? Zero. Nothing. Relative to God, that's who we are. He is infinite. We need to see that. There's ants. We can look at the ants. We're men. Ants have homes. Ants procreate, they forage for food, they work together, they even go to war. What's an ant to us? Nothing. We can step on it and they're done. Now, take man to an infinite God. As a believer, you already know the who. And so you can rejoice, you can take comfort, you can live righteously. That's the only way. Galatians 4, 9 says, but now that you have come to know, or I could say come to see God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? That's impossible. But for the unbeliever, you are ultimately blind and alone on the earth. You are completely helpless. You are without hope. You are distracted by your own wandering appetite, living in vanity and chasing the wind. A very important question to ask yourself, is this me? And a more important question to ask yourself, who can bring me to see what will be after me? Do you have such hubris as to think you can do it? Here's a picture. You're driving on vacation, and you're going to the mountains. You're you're going down a very wide road, a highway. Many are on the road with you, but up ahead, the bridge is out. You, You don't know it. You can't see it. But there is a warning sign. But you don't see it because you're distracted. By everything around you, you are blind to the warning sign. What happens to you? This is the unbeliever seeing everything and yet not seeing the one thing that matters. To put it bluntly, death is your destination. The bridge is out. On the other hand, for the believer, you saw the warning sign. You took the narrow detour And as a result, you can now see your destination. And it is marvelous. What does one typically do when he sees his destination on a long journey or a long-awaited return? I'm thinking here of the soldier who gets off the boat or the train or the plane, and there's the crowds all around, and he sees his family, his wife, his children. What does he do? What do they do? He fixes his eyes on them. And he runs. Nothing else matters. 
Same thing, if you go back to my analogy, if you've gone on vacation somewhere, I've done it, I don't know about you, but when I get close to the end, I start getting excited. My foot goes heavier on the pedal. I want to get there. Um, You fix your eyes on the mountains, right? Um, You head straight for them, and as you approach, your desire to get to them, your family, the mountain, whatever it is, grows. Is this you this morning? Is your desire building? Is your destination in view, and are you pursuing God? Or are you easily distracted by your wandering appetite? Are you pursuing God as the great treasure, the great pearl that he is? Recall Jesus' parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl from Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. One more, I'll call it personal example, because I like to help you remember these ideas. And this is a story I call Me and Five Dollars. And uh, there's a story about when I was a young boy, and I don't have a very good memory, but some things stand out to me. And I remember this day with my mom. We were going to the bank. She had some business to take care of. I think I was probably in late grade school or something like that. We're going to the bank, and she went and took her business. We came out of the bank. It was a bright, sunny day, not unlike today, I suppose. And we walked down the stairs of the bank. It was kind of a nice bank. We turned left on the sidewalk. And up ahead was a $5 bill on the ground. I saw it, and my mom saw it. There was no one else around, so we couldn't go up and say, oh, sir, you dropped your $5 bill here, take it. There was no one around. I saw that $5 bill, and as my mom tells the story, I shoved her aside, and I ran and got that $5 bill because it was of great value to me. $5 was a lot of money. Um, That's what I'm talking about. Okay, all that's the setup now. We get to chapter 7 and the better than Proverbs. This Proverbs are starting. Let me read for you Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Well, first, what's a good name? Well, most commentators say it's talking about your reputation here. So better than good wealth, or better than wealth, or good or precious ointment, that's what, that's what they're talking about there, is, is wealth, and is a good name. The comparison to wealth makes a lot of sense, um, since the previous chapter warned us about wealth, if you remember the previous message seven months ago. Also, we can see a comparison with this verse and the verse above about the baby dying in childbirth. Let me read for you. Chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, a shadow, I added that, by the way, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, is your soul satisfied? And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, 
and, it's dar- and in darkness, its name is covered. This gives us some insight. The baby's name, its reputation, is hidden in darkness. It's hidden in death because it died. No man has the opportunity to know it, and it has no reputation. Okay, I could, we could take that verse and say, there you go. It's better to have a good name than wealth. The problem I had is that sounds good, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's true in a sense. But here was my problem. Based on what Solomon has said in the previous chapters, who really cares if you have a good name or a good reputation? If everything is vanity and we all just die anyways, who cares? Here's what he said, and I'm just gonna, I can read a bunch of verses. I'll just pick one. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I ask myself, how does this answer the ultimate question he just posed? We can't just take a text and not see what's gone before. We have to look at it in context. Solomon is talking to us. God is speaking to us through Solomon. So, so how does this relate to the question? Well, we know from Scripture there is only one who is good and that no one else is good. So how can any of us really have a good name or a good reputation in the ultimate sense? Because he just asked ultimate questions. We're talking about ultimate things here. Solomon surely understood that no one was good. He knew from Scripture, if not from his personal experience. If you read the earlier verses in Ecclesiastes, he, he, he demonstrates and shows how, how wicked and bad man is. But, but Solomon knew Psalm 53, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. No reputation there. No good one anyways. To the contrary, in Psalm 54, right after Psalm 53 in verses 1 and 6, the psalmist writes, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. With a freewill offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. In fact, Solomon has already told us we are beasts, right? Chapter 3. And in chapter 7, verse 20, he says this. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So how does man get a good name worth far more than valuable ointment? It seems impossible since no one does good. But here's the good news. It It must be possible because a good name is better. From Charles Bridges' commentary on Ecclesiastes, he writes, The real treasure is the true and solid name of faith and holiness, a glorious crown that is stamped on men. How do you obtain a good name? 
It's stamped on you by the one who alone is good, who can save us by his name. In the second half of the verse, I'm going to use the LSB translation. I love my ESV translation, but sometimes the LSB helps clarify things. It says, and better is the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. Some of your translations will say, better is the, is, is, is the, um, the day of death than the day of birth. It's really important. It's the day of one's death. We're talking about my death. We're talking about your death, right? Not just death. Better is the day of one's death. Do you hear Paul here? I, I think of Berlan's cousin Sharon, right? She just passed away. Better is the day of death. She was looking to her reward. Do you hear Paul in Philippians chapter 1? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed because of between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's what Paul said. Only believers can say this. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The day of one's death is better. Is your destination in view? Do you see right here in verse 1, Solomon is answering the question about what will be after man under the sun for those who have a good name? After is going to be better. Next, Solomon tries to prepare you for your after by suggesting you go to someone else's funeral. What better place to ponder what will be after than at a funeral? Ecclesiastes 7.2 It is better to go to the house of mourning than to, the go, than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. It's better to go to the funeral home than the party house. And if you're wise, you're going to lay it to heart, because you're going to see yourself in that coffin. That is your destiny. The bridge is out. Continuing this idea in Ecclesiastes 7.3, sorrow is better than laughter. Now, that doesn't make any sense. But it does. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. You need to ponder these texts for seven months. You can't whip past them. Here, brothers and sisters, we are taking life seriously because this life is serious. The stakes are very high. We we have many trials that cause us to mourn. But what does James chapter 1 say? 
And he's saying this to who? The dispersed, he calls them. Ultimately, those who are away from their heavenly homeland, just like us. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials are difficult and mournful circumstances. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. This is only possible if you have seen God as sovereign and good. Muscle is built through resistance. Endurance is built through high-intensity training and pressing on through adversity. When are men drawn most to God? When do we, when do you grow in faith? Kevin and Sue are growing in faith right now. Not when life is all of ease, but when the trials come. 2 Corinthians 12.10 For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Sadness of heart. Verse 4, 5, and 6. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. We're comparing the funeral home to the party house. You see, going to a funeral is a rebuke to everyone who goes. It makes us stop and think about eternal things, like who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. It causes us to number our days. It's a warning sign that the bridge is out. It warns us of our wandering appetites that are never, ever satisfied by focusing us on reality. This life, which is filled with God's common good grace, and it is, it's one thing about Ecclesiastes. I just bought a book, and it's, it's, it, it's, it, I haven't read it yet, but the title, it, it's, it's um, I don't remember the title, but it's talking, Ecclesiastes isn't saying we, we stay in the party house, or sorry, we stay in the, in the funeral home with, with dearth and dirge. We enjoy God's good gifts because we see who he is. So this life is filled with God's common good grace, but it will end, and man can do nothing about it. Many are distracted by their own appetites in the party house, where there is the song and the laughter of fools, right where Satan wants you. Practically speaking, you are cooking with thorns, he says. Have you ever burned thorns? Who here has burned burned thorns or pine needles? How do they burn? They burn bright. And quick, pretty exciting, but the fire doesn't last. Life ends and the party is over and all you're left with is useless ashes. 
and no good food to satisfy your soul. This approach to life is vanity. And sadly, everyone who takes this approach, at least in some way, at some level, you know it. But you choose it anyways. Why? Ecclesiastes 7, 7. <clears throat> Surely oppression, uh, or it could be termed extortion, drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. That's why. Now, it says the wise here, and if you remember other times I talked about Ecclesiastes, there, there's, it's tricky because there's the worldly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. I just want to tell you, there is no oppression or extortion that can drive the, God, the godly wise into madness. God won't allow it. So here we're talking about the worldly wise. This is also a warning. You may have a sense that the party house is going nowhere, but you stay anyways, giving into the extortion and accepting the bribe because of your nature. The human heart is deceitful. Just so we got it clear, extortion is when someone attempts to force or threaten to do something, usually something you shouldn't, like, say, give up something of value, your life. You know you shouldn't, but you give in to the pressure to do the wrong thing. A bribe is giving something of value to persuade someone to do something often that is unlawful. So not only is the God of this world a distractor who will keep you occupied at the party house and, you know, to get off on a little bit of a soapbox, we are easily distracted. Right? Think. As I said in a letter to you guys not too long about prayer, think about the distractions of social media. Think about the distractions of entertainment. Think about the distractions of video games. I'm not saying that all of these things are bad in and of themselves. I'm saying the, the immense consumption of these things is Satan distracting you? Extortion and bribery, oppression. If you ask me, it's currently in our culture, the Christians who are being oppressed. You've heard me at our prayer meetings talk about the Christians who, for no real fault of their own, who were simply peacefully protesting at an abortion clinic, got arrested and threatened with jail time and fines. That, that is oppression. Or last week I read about a family whose child is transgender and they refuse to use the right pronouns or call it by the name that that child desires. And the government has taken that child from their parents. They investigated the parents. There was no abuse other than using the wrong pronouns. That child is not with their parents. That is oppression. That is extortion. The, the government is telling us, if you believe what you believe and you live by that, this could happen to you. 
in the job market. I see this all the time. It's both extortion and bribery. They say to the believer, hey, be an ally. Diversity, inclusion, equity. Nice words. The initials spelled die. If you're an ally, we'll give you a job. We'll give you a promotion. For believers, we need to stand. For the worldly wise, they will give in because they want the money. A good name is better than wealth. Off my soapbox. So not only is the God of this world a distractor who will keep you occupied at the party house, he is an extorter and a briber. Satan is continually trying to distract man so that we will not see God. And he is extorting and bribing us in order that we would be so mad as to not fear God. For example, throughout our lives, Satan's refrain is, if you don't go along with the culture on the wide road where the bridge is out, you're going to miss out. You will even be an outcast. You will be a weirdo. He is saying here, I will give this immediate pleasure. Think how Satan tempted Christ. Just do it. Keep driving. It will make you happy. It's much easier. This is the road to death. And any who are on it, that is where you are heading. And any who go along with it as an ally, you are in danger. Don't let the distractions, the pressures, the briberies, the temptations of your own deceitful heart cause you to miss the detour. The bridge is out. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. This verse argues against giving in to bribery and extortion by pointing us once again to the end. What will be after? The world fears the end. But a Christian can say this with confidence. To live is Christ and to die is gain. A Christian can say all things. The good and the bad work together for good. So do you have faith in God? Are you pursuing him and are you anticipating his return? Are you like Abraham who obeyed God and went from his home to receive the inheritance, as it says, not knowing where he was going? Are you like Noah, who being warned by God that the bridge was out, concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household? Are you like Moses, who by faith, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in the party house? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Indeed, better is a good name than precious ointment. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt. Kenji, (laughs) 
I think, of your testimony. You left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king or the culture or whoever, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw God. If you believe like these men and are looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, here then are the characteristics, at least some of them, the qualities your life will have in increasing measure. Is this you? Ecclesiastes 8 through 10. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Patience, humility, slow to anger, always looking to your future hope. Is your destination in view? True believers trust in the promised future by living righteously in the present moment. We are not pining for the past or worried about the future. We press on to the mark of the high calling. We look to our reward. We run in such a way as to get the prize, that treasure, that pearl, that $5 bill. A patient spirit is one that trusts God. Verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In chapter 6, verse 11, Solomon asked, what is the advantage to man? Here's the answer. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, along with an after. Godly wisdom has such an inheritance. Godly wisdom is an advantage to those who see the sun because through it one knows what is good for him. During his lifetime, and he knows by faith what will be after. So to help us see in a way that we can all grasp, Solomon gives us an analogy. Wisdom is like the protection of money. With money in this life, one can have comfort, necessities, met, health care, protection, security, entertainment. You can have everything this world has to offer. Godly wisdom is like that, but better. Godly wisdom literally preserves our life for eternity. Physical death is our future, and we must lay it to heart. But here's the good news again. There is a wisdom that preserves our lives even after death. And we who are so blessed can see him clearly. Just like Moses. Christ, who the Bible literally calls the wisdom of God. Whose good name is applied to God's elect. Making our reputations good. All right, we're to the final verses. I hope I haven't gone too long. Final verses, chapters 13 and four, or verses 13 and 14. Again, I'm reading from the LSB. It does a better job. See the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, see 
God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Man is not the who. See the work of God. Some of your Bibles will say consider. Solomon's not asking us to consider God in a take him or leave him kind of way. He is directing us to see God through his works of providence. Here he asks, who can make straight what God has made crooked? You compare this to the earlier part of the book in chapter 1, verse 15, when we were in fear and we were in futility, where things are just bent and cannot be straightened. That's what it said. Do you see the progression? Here he implies the answer to the problem right in the question. He's telling you the who. If God bent it, no man could straighten it. Who can dispute with God? But God can. Here we have hope and a positive answer to the ultimate question of who. In verse 14, we see God through his providential ordaining of all things. He makes both the day of adversity and the day of prosperity with the express purpose that man cannot find out anything that will be after him. It says so that. In other words, we are to trust only in God in every moment of our lives because he has made them the good and the bad. So unbeliever, are you really okay with no God and pure chance? You really need to ponder the futility of your thinking. The bridge is out. Or perhaps you want a God you can explain or make in your image, perhaps one who only gives just days of prosperity. Again, you need to think about this for seven months. But given the reality of sin, and you see it in others, and if you're at all self-aware, you'll see it in yourself. Given that reality of sin, this is a foolish approach to eternity. Or, and here is the answer, an almighty God who makes both the day of prosperity and adversity as he pleases by manifesting his glory upon you. Many commentators suggest verse 14 is a lesson to the believer in regard to adversity, and I agree. When you truly see God, as believers only can, comfort for life's present trials is all yours because he is who he says he is. Paul, seeing God, said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 and 10, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always, and here's the why, They're not always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our our bodies. 
Funeral home, where's your sting? Going further, he says in verse 17 and 18, for the light momentary affliction, because this life is a shadow, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, and that's God. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Unbelievers don't know what to do with adversity in this life and certainly have no answer for death. Unbelievers who don't see God and can't answer the question of who, really who is able to straighten what God has bent, what God is subject to futility. Who? If you can't see, you're left chasing the wind. Believers, do you see the treasure we have in Christ? Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, those with a good name, for they shall see God. 1 Peter 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your souls are satisfied. After is better. When you grasp this treasure, as I've been trying to do, and I know it's not easy, it's, it's as if you have already won the war. Skirmishes may remain, you may even get wounded, but the outcome is assured. Have you ever played chess? And you knew you were going to win, even though the game wasn't over? Just a few more moves to certain victory. You, you see it. They, the component has nothing they can do. The end is coming. When you have Christ, when you trust Christ, when you see God through the conviction of things not seen, you have certain victory. And to the degree that you trust God and cast your cares upon him, joy and anticipation is yours because your destination is in view. I'm basically done. But I just wanted to tell you, I've been speaking of some pretty lofty things here. And I'll just tell you that as I've been studying and thinking about this, um, you know, I I fall short. Um, But it's what we need to keep striving for as believers. We need to trust God in every moment. We need not pine for the past or worry about the future. Comfort is ours. The end is in view. God exists, and he has revealed himself to us. All we need to do is see him. So then, the ultimate question is already answered. Who can tell man what will be after him? It's the same one who can straighten what he alone has made crooked. God can. And as has already been stated, what will be after? Better. Much better. So I want to end by reading you a text from Isaiah, one of my other now favorite books from a long time ago. Isaiah 45, verses 18 through 23. 
Isaiah 45, 18 through 23. For the unbeliever who has not seen God, here is yet another warning. For the believer who has seen God, an encouragement that replaces fear with confident hope. Here we go. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I do not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Amen.